I've got an app on my phone. It's called Flight Radar 24, and you should totally get it. It's the best. It enables you to track the flight path of just about every aircraft on the planet. It's fantastic. I can tell you as excited as me about it. I know Norman's excited. It Truly, it is absolutely the best. Anyhow, last year... This community of slightly odd flight trackers, including myself, gained some media attention. How so? Well, because they started tracking the flight paths of private jets. And with a little bit of detective work, it's not hard, you can work out who owns these aircraft. Now, if you can afford a private jet, I say good luck to you. Well done. If you're wondering, I'd like a Gulfstream 650 in my Christmas stocking. They are stunningly beautiful machines. I mean, imagine if I pulled up to church in one of those. All to the glory of God, of course. (laughs) However, in a cultural moment where frivolous carbon emissions are frowned upon, rightly or wrongly, private jets have become symbolic of our overconsumption at the expense of the planet. That being so... It's odd that some of the most frequent flyers in these private jets are also some of the world's most outspoken climate change activists. Knock me over with a feather. Now, I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but I'll say this much. When it comes to being judged for our carbon emissions... It feels like there's one standard of judgement for plebs like me and another standard of judgment for the elites. Maybe I'm wrong. But I reckon it stinks, don't you, when the scales of justice are rigged to accommodate hypocrisy. Over the last two weeks, we've heard that whether you're a secular pagan or an upright, respectable person, when it comes to the judgment of God, it makes no difference. Because chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth. And I'll speak for myself, I've found this uncomfortable, having my sin and my guilt repeatedly week after week exposed for what it is. But as the opening section of this letter was being read, there remained one class of people who stood apart. With some justification, the Jews considered themselves racially, religiously and ritually superior. And on this basis, they presumed themselves to be immune from God's judgment because, well... I'm one of God's people, obviously. As if the sin-bearing death of Jesus was necessary for others, but not so much for me. But last week, as we heard Dave brought us, chapter 2, verse 11, we learned when it comes to the application of God's justice, he doesn't play favourites. Everyone will be judged according to what they do. And that's the point of this long section from chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul methodically dismantles every possible human excuse so that everyone will realise that outside the mercy of Jesus, we are all equally under the wrath of God. No favourites. Today we're going to see that because there are no favourites, your race 
your religion and your rituals offer no protection against the wrath of God. Even the privileged Jew needs the mercy of the Lord Jesus. If you're following, I'm up to point number one in my, ser- in my sermon outline there. Race and religion, no protection. Look at verse 17 with me. We'll spend some time on this. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God. Paul is addressing Jewish Christians, remember? That's who he's writing to. Jewish Christians who are part of the church in Rome. And he's about to turn the table, so to speak, on these Jewish Christians and hold them to account for their hypocrisy. But before he does any of that, it's important for them and for us to realise this reminder of just how privileged the Jews really were. And they were privileged. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, this takes us back Back to the racial heritage of the Jewish nation. The Jews, remember, are the chosen people of God. We heard it from the book of Exodus just before the law is read. It only occurred to me this morning. I didn't think of this. He's already saved them from the nation of Egypt. They are already his people. And now he says to them, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations... You will be for me my treasured possession. Only the Jews receive this promise, making them racially distinct from every other nation. So picture yourself, you're born into the chosen people of God. You don't know any different. This is your experience. So wouldn't it be understandable then that you might develop a sense of security and pride in your racial pedigree? I'm one of the chosen. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, in addition to their racial privilege, the law, and and I say this carefully, the law, I I think of the Ten Commandments. This is pure religion, so to say, by which I mean the law represented the word of the eternal God given to the Jews by angels. Now here again, God dealt with no other nation like this. God revealing his wisdom, his character through his moral law so that The Jews might know and please God and flourish rightly as his people and by doing so become a blessing to the nations. This privileged knowledge of the law given directly by God, this was the unique possession of the Jews. They were racially distinct and they enjoyed genuine moral advantage. Verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God. We might instinctively think boasting is negative, not necessarily. To boast in God can be the same to rejoice in God. And what Paul's pointing out is that these Jews who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Can you feel the gear shift? Because over time, privilege without humility breeds arrogance, which gets expressed ultimately in hypocrisy. 
Privilege, over time, without humility, breeds arrogance, which gets expressed in hypocrisy. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And so on it goes. Do you see what Paul has done? You have the law. But do you keep it? I want you just to step back for a minute and to to place yourself in the room where this is being read for the first time. Because the atmosphere has definitely taken a turn for the awkward. One, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you might say to yourself, well, I haven't done any of those things. This is just a representative list. I doubt anybody would want to say that they are perfect. And here's the problem for us, you see, because since chapter 2, verse 6, God judges everybody according to what we do, having a moral code, even one as privileged as the Jewish law, well, it becomes irrelevant if you don't keep it. Actually, worse than that, you may have it, but by not keeping it, you are condemned by the very law you brag about. It's getting a bit old now, but one of my favourite movies of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. If you've not seen it, do yourself a favour. It's set in a prison where the main character, Andy Dufresne, has been wrongfully sentenced for murdering his wife. And at one point, this guy Andy has a conversation with another prisoner, a guy called Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And in one of the more powerful scenes, surrounded by career criminals, this guy Red says to Andy... I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank. Everybody here is innocent. And I think we can be just like that, don't you? Out of pride, quick to defend our innocence, sometimes in the face of compelling evidence to the contrary. And that's the reason why from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul spends so much time detailing the reality of human guilt before God. He's essentially making the same point all the way through, just from different angles. Whether you're a godless pagan, a respectably upright person, or even a privileged Jew, it doesn't matter. Your racial privilege will not shield you and your religion cannot save you. But for the Jew, and as we'll see in a moment by extension to the Christian, there is one final obstacle Paul must overcome. One final obstacle to convince these Jewish Christians that Jesus' death really is for them too. We're going to talk about rituals and rites, and I have to tell you, the word circumcision gets mentioned an uncomfortable number of times in the remainder of our passage. We're not going to dwell on the mechanics. Male circumcision was the sign given by God 
to Abraham that set his people apart. It was a deliberately sensitive, personal sign that was for the whole nation, an outward sign of the inner devotion to God. So that by way of physical reminder, male circumcision for the nation would be God's way of saying, Israel, you belong to me, and therefore, Israel, you will live rightly as my people. That was the point of the sign. Now, look, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If it was up to me, I'd choose a different sign. I'd go with an earring, a tattoo, a mullet, whatever. But here we are. This is the sign that was given. Unfortunately, as sometimes happens, people invested in the sign a value it did not deserve. Jews came to rely on circumcision as if this sign guaranteed their privileged status as the people of God. And Paul has to undo this faulty assumption. Oh, but I have circumcision. Well, unless the outward sign reflects the inner heart of obedience, the sign has no value, verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. It has value, circumcision. But notice the link to obedience. If you observe the law. But if you break the law, the sign has no value. In other words, you can have all the law and circumcision you like, but since no one is able to keep the law, and we've already established that, you're going to be judged as a lawbreaker because that's what you are making the ritual of circumcision completely worthless to you. That being said, supper or confirmation or perhaps one time you shook the hand of a bishop, it is possible to develop an almost superstitious attachment to these signs which was never the intention. The signs have value, but they cannot save you. And for all the complexity of these verses, the simple point is, when it comes to God's judgment, your racial heritage, your religious convictions, and your ritual behaviour cannot shield you from the wrath of God. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a position where every possible human defence has been removed. There's no retreat. The rebellious pagan, the morally upright person, even the Jew, we are together under the wrath of God. No excuses, no exceptions. So if race, religion and rituals are no use in the application of God's judgment, then what is the solution in this passage? Because remember, the gospel is meant to be good news. Well, you and I might prefer a different image, but this passage calls us to seek a better circumcision, a better way of being marked 
out as God's people. Not outwardly by the cutting of flesh, but inwardly through what Paul calls the circumcised heart, by which he means the new heart. A new heart of inner devotion. The new heart that God gives us by his spirit. The moment you put your trust in Jesus. God's spirit who steers us to repentance in a way the law never could. God's spirit who reveals in Jesus a forgiveness the law could never provide. And God's spirit who produces in us that new obedience which the law was powerless to achieve. And so it is, the word of the Lord is proven true yet again. For example, this promise from Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh that you might follow my decrees. No amount of racial privilege or religious practice or ritual observance can produce this new heart. It is given to us when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus and as God pours his spirit into our lives that we might receive this new heart and begin to live rightly as his people. Shielded from his wrath, not through our observance of some moral code, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ who completes the moral code for us perfectly where we failed. And so you're three quarters of the way through the hard news of Romans 1 to 5. There is one more instalment next week. But where have we come from? The wrath of God, do you remember, is being revealed, present tense, against the rebellious pagan, the respectably upright moral person, and the privileged Jew alike. And Paul's point today is simply to say that your race, your religion, your ritual, no matter what form it takes, it offers you no protection. What you need is the new heart given to you as you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your patience towards us. And we do ask that you would grant to our slow minds the ability to understand and to trust wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ, to value ritual rightly, but to be reminded that it is the Lord Jesus alone who saves. And so we do pause to give you thanks that you've reached out to us with this good news. And we ask that in the week to come, your spirit would do his work in our hearts that you would produce that inner devotion, that our lives would honour Jesus and that we would be a blessing to those around us. Father, enable us to fulfil this calling, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.